This morning we're going to look at what has to be one of the most sobering passages of Scripture for anyone who professes to follow Jesus Christ. It's a fearful warning to everyone who claims to trust in Christ. And it's a warning that you won't frequently hear from most pulpits because it's too unsettling. But Jesus has no qualms about unsettling His disciples if it will unsettle them from the path leading to hell and into the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life. He's too loving not to warn us when there's danger. And He will not coddle us and comfort us and encourage us if we're in severe spiritual danger. He warns us and He woos us to come to Him for eternal life. And if or when we have not truly come to Him, He will make it plain to us. Jesus will gather His sheep from the broad path that leads to destruction and bring them through the narrow gate. And one of the ways that He does this work is through severe warnings like the one that we see in our passage for today, which is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. And so if you would, open your Bible to Matthew 7. And we're going to look at verses 21 to 23 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, our Lord says this, He says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, we need not fear looking at a passage like this. This is a passage from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to His disciples, and so it's a a word from Him for us today. And it's for our good. It's to warn us lest we be like the people that He describes here. Jesus would have us examine ourselves today. Paul says something really similar, and I actually want you to turn here. Let's look at this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. A similar situation. Paul says there, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so we see it's for our good from time to time to sincerely consider our lives as to whether we are in the faith. We need to test ourselves and ask ourselves whether Jesus Christ is in us. Are we truly born again? Are we truly born again? That's the question for this morning. Jesus says there will be people who call Him Lord who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There will be people who prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and who do many mighty works in his name who go to hell in the end. We need to carefully consider the marks of these people so that we are not among them. Now we've been studying this Sermon on the Mount for a while now. But for those of us visiting, I just want to try to briefly consider what we've seen in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told His disciples the characteristics of a kingdom citizen. The the characteristics of uh, somebody who will enter the kingdom of heaven. As a citizen of this kingdom, we will enter the kingdom when it's established. They will Those who are citizens will be rewarded with treasure in heaven. So what does one who will enter this kingdom look like? What are their characteristics? Well, we've seen that they're quite different from from what we could call natural people. They've, They've been transformed so that they're no longer like regular people who live in the world. Natural people, if we think about it, natural people enjoy their sin. Transformed people mourn over it and they, they're poor in spirit. Natural people try to get their way, but transformed people are meek. Natural people hunger and thirst for food and clothing and any a number of other desires, but transformed people hunger and thirst for righteousness. Transformed people hunger and thirst to glorify God in their lives. Now, Jesus doesn't say in this sermon how someone is transformed. He only says that those who will enter the kingdom are transformed. They will be transformed. they're, They're a transformed kind of people. And the key mark of a kingdom citizen, and this is kind of a, a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount, the, a key mark of a kingdom citizen is a, that they have a God-centered, God-glorifying righteousness that seeks to honor God in everything that they do. Again, the key mark of a kingdom citizen is a God-centered, God-glorifying righteousness that seeks to honor God in everything that we do. And so that's what we've seen so far in this Sermon on the Mount. Now we know that from Scripture, from the concluding verses of the Sermon on the Mount, and even from our own experience, that it's exceedingly rare to find somebody like this who has this kind of righteousness. Few people are are the way that Jesus says we must be to enter the kingdom of heaven. Few seek to honor God by living righteously as described in the Sermon on the Mount. After showing what we must be and how we are to live, we must be righteous and we must do righteousness. After showing that, Jesus called His disciples to enter into that life. He said in Matthew 7 and verse 13, He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And immediately after the call to enter, he warned against false prophets. False prophets come in sheep's clothing, and they, they seem to be genuine believers, but they have not entered at the narrow gate. And they do not live according to the Sermon on the Mount. They do not have the righteousness that seeks to glorify God. And we can know these false prophets by their fruit because good trees, Jesus says, 
bear good fruit. Transformed, born-again believers live according to the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we've seen so far. Transformed, born-again believers, they are according to the Sermon on the Mount, and they do as Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus ends then, He ends the sermon by setting forth these two choices. There's two gates, the narrow and the broad. There's two ways, the easy and the hard, or maybe a better translation, the narrow and the broad. There's two kinds of fruits. There's good fruit and bad fruit. And those fruits grow on two trees, healthy and diseased. And there's two destinations, either life or destruction. According to Matthew 7 and verse 19, bad trees bear bad fruit and they're cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, they're going to go to hell. Untransformed people, natural people, are going to go to destruction. And so for Jesus, there's only two options. There's only two options. You're, you're either on the narrow way or you aren't. You've either entered the narrow gate or you haven't. But an important question then at this point is how do you enter the narrow gate? How do you enter into the narrow gate and the narrow way and into this life? Well, we've talked about it a little bit. It's not like you can just decide one day, you know, from here on out, I'm going to be merciful. From here on, I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if anyone makes me carry their bags one mile, I'll go two miles. You can't just say one day, you know, I've been a bad tree long enough and I'm going to be a good tree from now on. But still, there, there must be a conscious decision on your part to enter the narrow gate or to live how Jesus says to live. And what really has to happen here is that you need a new heart. God must transform you to live this way. Now the closest thing that Jesus actually gives that tells us how to enter and how to be transformed like this is in Matthew 7 and verse 7 where He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Those are wonderful promises to anyone who would live a life of God-centered righteousness. If that's a desire of yours, that's a that's a wonderful promise to you that God will give you that desire and He will answer those prayers. And if you want to live this way, if you sincerely want to glorify God with your life, that's a great sign that God has already transformed your desires because natural people don't want to live this way. People, as they come into the world, they don't want to glorify God and live a righteous life that honors Him. Most people if you, that you've met and seen in the world, most people could care less about those kinds of things. And so if you find those desires in your heart, that's a good sign that you, may, that, that you could very well possibly be transformed already. So here we are, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told us who a Christian is in terms of their internal character. And He told us what they do in terms of their deeds and their actions. Then He commanded His disciples to enter into that life. And He warns that few actually find life. Few. And he says, many are on the broad way that leads to destruction. He says, watch for false prophets who are wolves 
in sheep's clothing. They have not entered at the narrow gate and they will keep you from entering if you aren't careful. And there's a progression here. Verses 13 and 14 are a, are a broad warning to all and a call to enter. And then verses 15 to 20 warn about outsiders who will come to you, false prophets and false teachers. Many are on the broad road to destruction. Many are bad trees that bear bad fruit. But now Jesus goes even further. And He says many will call Him Lord, but they won't enter. Many will do all kinds of wonderful, powerful things, but they won't enter. We talked about the broad road in this context. It's a, it's a religious road. And we can say in one sense that, that everyone starts in the world in Adam and in sin and on their way to destruction, but the, the road that Jesus is talking about here in the context is a road made up of religious people. People who think they're on the way to heaven. And it would include anyone who claims to worship the one true God. The broad road would especially include the Jews of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and even just the people as a whole. One preacher I heard said of these people that they were part of the ordained religion of God, but they were on the way to hell. But now in verses 21 to 23, Jesus goes further. And He says, many will call Him Lord, but still not enter. And this is serious. We need to take a close look at this because many will think that Jesus is their Lord, but they're not going to heaven. I want to look at this text under two headings this morning. I want to, I want to look closely at the two kinds of professors that Jesus describes. Now when I say professor, I, I don't mean a professor who teaches at a school. I mean one who professes something. And in this case, they profess that Jesus is Lord, but only one of the two kinds of professors is actually going to make it to heaven. And so now we have two professors with the same profession, but only one is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so again, we need to be very clear about what the difference is. And we'll start as the text does with the, the perishing professor. The perishing professor. And that's also what I called the sermon. This is the, the perishing professor. And so number one in your outline, let's look at those who will not enter the kingdom. Let's look at those who will not enter the kingdom. Again, Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we'll skip to verse 22. He says, On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. And what this does is this creates a, a subgroup of people. Both people we're going to look at today, again, both people that we'll look at make this profession. Those who will enter and those who will not, both of them make the same profession, but not all of them go to heaven. Now this might be shocking for us because sometimes the, the way to enter into heaven is presented as asking Jesus into your heart or by professing faith in Christ and calling Him Lord. But not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter. Only some of them will. 
And what's more surprising is that these people don't merely call Jesus Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. And the repetition there shows an emphasis. There's a a measure of enthusiasm in their profession. Lord, Lord. This is not an apathetic, heartless profession. This is a vibrant, excited, Lord, Lord, that these people are saying. Also, this is not only an enthusiastic profession, it's the right profession. It's an orthodox profession of faith. These people know that Jesus is Lord. This is the profession of the early church. Romans 10.9, you probably know this verse. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and, and is saved. And so the true confession of the church is that Jesus is Lord. Now the meaning of Lord is something that we need to talk about though. This is the first time in Matthew that that, the, that Matthew uses the term Lord to describe Jesus. Now after this, after this point, as we kind of go through the rest of the Gospel, we'll, we'll often see people calling Jesus Lord. They'll come up to Him and say, Lord, could you do this? Could you do that? And there's really nothing unusual about people calling Jesus Lord in most cases. Lord was often used as a term of respect. And, and someone might respectfully say, excuse me, Lord. Just like we would say, excuse me, sir, if we wanted to walk past somebody. Lord can be nothing more than a polite form of address, but it could also be much more. Lord originally meant the owner of something. And so in Matthew 20 and verse 8, it's, it says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard, and the owner there is the literally the Lord of the vineyard. And so the word Lord meant to own something, the owner of something. And the, the word, I'll give you the word in Greek just to, I think it'll help us as we go. It's, it's kurios. So the, the kurios of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard. Lord in that sense also referred to the master of something. Now we saw that word Lord used that way as the master of something in Matthew 6.24. Just turn back to Matthew 6.24 and let's look at it there. It says, no one can serve two masters. That's, no one can serve two curios. Curios is the singular, but, but no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two lords. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so one master, one lord here is God, and the other one, the other potential one is money. And you need to choose which one you, you will serve, which one will own you, we could say it that way. God is our Lord and our Master. God is our owner. And that meaning then kind of blends into an even stronger use of this word Lord. The word Lord was used to refer to gods, small g, gods, various gods of the Roman and Greek world. The Greeks used to use the word Lord to speak of their gods and the Romans used it to refer to their emperor, which they came to see as a kind of a sort of deified man. He was like a, a godlike man in their mind, and so they called him Lord. Now, the use of Lord to speak of God is especially clear 
in the, what, what we call the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint was the, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek that was most frequently quoted in the New Testament. And so the early Christians and the apostles, they knew about the use of the word Lord to refer to God. Because whenever you see Lord in your, in your, well, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, whenever you see that word Lord with a capital L-O-R-D, sometimes you, you see in the Old Testament, you see Lord with all capital letters. That's, that translates the Hebrew word, which is actually Yahweh. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, wherever that word Yahweh was, they translated it with the word Lord, kurios. Or maybe we shouldn't even say translated. Maybe we should say they substituted the word Yahweh with the word Kyrios. They didn't want to repeat the divine name. They got superstitious about that. And so they would, they would translate it or they would substitute instead of Yahweh, they would just put Lord. And what that means is that when the readers of Matthew saw the word Lord, they would have thought, at least in certain contexts, that it referred to Yahweh, that that word Lord referred to God. And just to show you this, even in Matthew, I want you to turn back and we'll look at a few of these. There's, there's more than what I'm going to show you, but we'll look at a few of these times where Matthew used the word Lord to refer to God the Father. So we'll go to Matthew chapter 1 and we'll, let's just start reading at verse 20. Matthew 1 and verse 20. But as he, and, and he there is Joseph, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, there's that word, the, the kurios, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and we can just stop there. Now, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the angel of Yahweh. Now, whether the angel of the Lord that appeared to Joseph was the angel of Yahweh or just an angel of Yahweh, some other angel from the Lord, the, 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 the Lord there is obviously referring to God. And again, in verse 22, we see that word Lord. And there it refers to Yahweh again because this is talking about Isaiah's prophecy. And so all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and, and the reader of Matthew would just automatically, and even in English, we kind of automatically just understand that that's talking about God. God the Father is the one who spoke by the prophet Yahweh, spoke by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy is the word of Yahweh. It's the word of God. And these verses also tell us that in, in this context here, that Jesus is God. He will save His people from their sins. He has His own people. He, Jesus, saves them, will save them from sins. And His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And He, Jesus, fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. But just notice how clearly and how easily Matthew uses the word Lord to refer to God. 
Now let's show you this in, in one more little context. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And we'll see it again in Matthew chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus. And here we see Jesus Himself refer to God with the word Lord. Kurios. In Matthew 4.6, the devil tempts Jesus. And look what Jesus replies in verse 7. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Lord your God, Lord in, in the, the word Lord in Lord your God is the same word as we have in our text. Again, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios. Now Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16 when He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16. And Deuteronomy 6.16 says this. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. But notice if you go back to Deuteronomy 6.16, it's Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And so you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. Well, Jesus says, kurios your God to the test. The Hebrew says you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. And so Jesus used the word Lord to translate the word Yahweh, just like the Septuagint, the Greek translation did. And he does it again in verse 10. So look at Matthew 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And again, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13, which again uses the word Yahweh. And so the confession, Lord, Lord, seems to imply that Jesus is God. That He is Yahweh. Not, not Yahweh the Father, but, but God the Son. Maybe we could even say it this way. Maybe we could say Yahweh the Son. Now Paul picks up on this also, and he calls Jesus Lord. And when he does, he makes it clear that Jesus is Yahweh and that Jesus is God. Now, there's a, a lot of places we could look at that. We could go back to Romans 10, but I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to show you this in, in Philippians chapter 2. And we're just looking at what, what, what does it mean that Jesus is called Lord? It means He's Master, but it's more than just merely Sir, and especially in our context in Matthew 7. So we're going to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse... 9. Philippians 2.9, it says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. And Him there refers to Jesus who took on human flesh and died on the cross. And so, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is above every name is the name of Jesus. And God the Father bestowed this name on God the Son because the Son took on humanity and became obedient as a man to the point of death. Look at verse 10 again. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now these verses are a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 45. And so I want you to keep your finger there in Philippians, and I want you to flip back to Isaiah 
chapter 45. And we'll look at Isaiah 45, 21 to 23. Isaiah 45, verse 21 says this. It says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who decreed it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Now notice that that Lord there is capital L-O-R-D. Capital O, capital R, capital D. That's referring to Yahweh. So was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And you'll notice what it says there. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. In other words, every tongue shall confess, which is exactly what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Now when it says there in Isaiah 45, to me, every knee shall bow, me is Yahweh. So now when Paul says, as we go back to Philippians, when Paul says every knee shall bow to Jesus and every one shall, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father, the confession is that Jesus is equal with Yahweh, that Jesus is God in human flesh. And this is a confession then that, that glorifies God and not one that blasphemes God according to Paul. <clears throat> Now, if, if we would say something like, uh, you know, every tongue shall confess that Mike is Lord to the glory of God, that would be a horrible blasphemy of me making myself equal with God. But Paul says Jesus is the name above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And that shows that Jesus is God, that he is, as we could say again, Yahweh the Son. Now let's take all of this stuff that we learned about about Yahweh and about the word Lord and let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Now the profession of faith that these people make is again, Lord, Lord. Which could be something like Sir, Sir, but in verse 22, when it says, on that day, it's speaking about the day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, Jesus says that people will try to defend themselves by appealing to Him. And they will also talk about what they did in His name. And Jesus Himself, He says, will be the judge on that day. And whether or not they will enter the kingdom depends on His judgment. And so what I'm trying to show you here is that that the setting here shows that Jesus truly is Lord in the full sense of He is God, He is the judge. And these people then are making a, a true and orthodox confession that Jesus is Yahweh and that they've been, that they've been doing things, even great things in His name, but that is not enough. A vibrant and orthodox profession of faith in Jesus as Lord is not enough. You can have that 
and be damned. You must have that. You can't have less than that. You must profess Him as Lord. But, but not everyone who has that and does that is saved. Now there's a contrast in verse 21 between what one says and what one does. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And so there's a contrast between merely saying and doing in verse 21. Now we'll look at what it means to do the will of, of God under the next setting, uh, under the next heading, but, but notice the contrast between saying and doing there. Saying Lord, Lord is not enough, but now as we go into verse 22, we see that even doing certain things is not enough. Even great things. The things these people do are remarkable. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works? in your name. And the way the question is set up shows that these people expect Jesus to answer, yes. Yes, you did. Yes, you prophesied. Yes, you cast out demons. Yes, you did many mighty works. And yes, you did those things in my name. But no, you are not welcome into my kingdom. To prophesy means to to speak forth revelation from God. To speak the Word of God. And we talked about prophecy and false prophecy last week. Casting out demons is simple enough to understand. Jesus and, and His disciples will, will cast out demons as we go through the book of Matthew. We've already seen that even in chapter 4 that, that they were casting out demons that Jesus was anyways. Mighty works is a, a broad term that would cover all kinds of miracles and healings and anything like that. And all of these are done... In Jesus' name. They were, they were, they were done in His name. It carries the idea that they were done for Him. And that they were done for His sake. And whether they were truly done, or whether these people only thought that they were done, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that people who do or think that they do such things could be lost. Such things are never a sign of true religion. And we could add other such things. We could, you know, I've never prophesied. I've never cast out a demon. I've never done a mighty work. But, you know, and you could just think about the things that you've done. I, I've set up some chairs. I've fed the poor and clothed the homeless. I've, I've served in various ways. I've taught classes. I've preached sermons in Jesus' name. But they are no sign that I belong to Jesus. What matters whether is whether or not Jesus knows me. Look at verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Does Jesus know you? What does it mean for Jesus to know you? The people in verse 22 would have answered, yes, Jesus knows me. I do many mighty works in His name. I do all kinds of great things in His name, but Jesus didn't know them. Now obviously as God, Jesus knows all things. He knows everyone in that sense as God. But to be known by Jesus implies an intimate relationship with Him. And this knowing would fit with a a biblical sense of foreknowledge where God is said to know His people even before they were born. It's a relational, loving kind of knowledge. It's a relational intimacy and a kind of knowledge on that level. This relationship with God requires, in order to have a relationship with a holy God, it requires cleansing from sin. 
Because the holy God will not dwell in the presence of sin. And it also then would require the removal of sin because sin is contrary to God and God is contrary to sin. So for Jesus or for God to know you or to know me, it means that our sins have been both forgiven and forsaken. It means you've turned from your sin and having turned, your sins have been forgiven. But this whole forgiveness and turning from sin has not occurred in the lives of those who will not enter the kingdom because Jesus doesn't know them. And they're described there further as those who practice lawlessness or actually workers of lawlessness. They had done all kinds of works in Jesus' name, but He calls them workers of lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? Lawlessness is synonymous with sin. And its opposite, the opposite of lawlessness is righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount's been showing us how to live now that Jesus has fulfilled the law and we've seen that, that, that how He would have us live is to live righteously. And so we could say that Jesus' law according to the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness. To be a worker of lawlessness is to be a worker of sin. A failure to live righteously would mean that you are lawless. Now to get this sense of lawlessness, I just want you to listen to some of these Scriptures where it's contrasted with various things. Matthew 23-27 says, in the words of our Lord, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead, ma- dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so the Pharisees, they look righteous on the outside, but inside, internally, they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's a, it's a show externally. And it's a hypocrisy. Remember the, the, the importance of sincerity on the Sermon on the Mount. These people have hypocrisy and lawlessness, even though inside they appear or outside they appear righteous to men. Matthew 24, 11 and 12 says that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is speaking about the last days. There's going to be false prophets. They're going to lead people astray. And verse 12 says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so we see this connection between these false prophets. Remember the false prophets were on the broad way that leads to destruction. They were not encouraging people to enter in at the narrow gate. And because of that, 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 that lack of, of proper teaching to enter the narrow gate, there was lawlessness and it's going to increase in the end, last days. And that lawlessness is also connected to a lack of love. Lack of love for God and a lack of love for others. And so lawlessness is connected with these false prophets with a lack of love. First John 3-4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And so we could ask, if you want to examine yourself this morning, we could say, do you make a practice of sinning? Is that your, is that your practice, your habitual lifestyle of sinning, even if it's on the inside? 
If, if, if that is you, then you are one of these people that Jesus is describing. You are lawless. Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And again, this connection between lawlessness and sin, Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And we see lawless deeds is parallel with sins there. So lawless deeds and sins go together. It's, it's breaking God's universal moral law. And Hebrews 1.9 says about Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And literally there, it's you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And so we see that lawlessness and righteousness are opposites. So here's what we see then of those who will not enter the kingdom. They could make a vibrant, and they will make a vibrant, enthusiastic, scripturally sound confession of Christ. They could even do some extraordinary works in Jesus' name. And I could just, let me just pause there and think about Judas. Judas would have been the prime example of this. He would have been the one that did miracles and prophesied and all of these things in Jesus' name, but he didn't have the righteousness that God called him to in the Sermon on the Mount. He hadn't had a transformation of life by the grace of God. And so these people make a vibrant, even enthusiastic, scripturally sound confession of faith. They even could do some extraordinary works in Jesus' name, but Jesus never knew them. He never knew them. Never at any time in their life were they known by Him. Their sins were never forgiven. They were never adopted into His family. He never knew them. And also they were workers of lawlessness, which means they did not practice righteousness. And so let's look now at what distinguishes the true believer from these people. What are the marks of one who will enter the kingdom? And this is number two in our outline, those who will enter the kingdom. Those who will enter the kingdom. And there's a few things that we want to notice about these people versus the others. Those who will enter the kingdom make the same profession, Lord, Lord. They profess Jesus as Lord, but they do so in more than just words. The others also had some deeds, prophesying, etc., but these are said to have done the will of my Father in heaven. Again, verse 21, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the one who will enter the kingdom. Next, these people are few in contrast to the many. Remember in 7.13, there were many on the broad way that leads to destruction. And in 7.14, there, there were few who found the narrow gate and the constrained way that leads to life. Our text repeats that word, many. And a, a broader group professes Jesus as Lord, but less than those will actually enter the kingdom. And so the people we're talking about who will enter the kingdom are the few. Another thing that we see about them is that Jesus does know them. He has a relationship with them, and therefore they indeed have a relationship with Him. Jesus will not say, as we see in verse 23, I never knew you. Instead, He will acknowledge them. He will confess them. He will say to them in the words of Matthew 25, 34, Come you who are blessed of my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And so Jesus will confess these people. And finally, we see that these people are not workers of lawlessness, which means that they were workers of righteousness. And because of these differences, these people will dwell with Jesus forever. They will inherit the kingdom. They will enter. But now we need to think really carefully about this because we can't afford to be wrong about this. We need to consider what Jesus says in context and, in, and really in the context of all of Scripture. Why will these people enter? Is it because they do the will of the Father and keep away from lawlessness? Is it because they practice righteousness? And in, in a sense, we could say, well, yes, it is. But we need to remember the start of, of my message today and we need to remember the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Nobody can do the will of the Father by their own power. And what is the will of the Father in this context? When you think about that verse, what is the will of the Father? It's living out the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount to the glory of God. And nobody can live that way apart from divine grace. Nobody can do these things in order to be saved. That is impossible. You must be saved. You must be regenerated. You must be born again to live this way. You must be transformed by God's grace. And if you are, you will bear good fruit and you will practice righteousness and you will do the will of the Father. Jesus is showing that many people will think they're Christians because they profess faith in Christ and because they do certain things. But true believers will show that they are indeed true believers not by what they say or by any outward things that they do. The true mark of a genuine believer is a transformed life, a righteous life, a life that lives to the glory of God. And if you have entered into that life, if you have begun to live in that way, if you have entered into salvation, you will be the kind of person Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you won't be that kind of person perfectly, but you will be that kind of person truly. And being that kind of person, you will do the will of God. Thorn bushes don't bear grapes, and neither do Christians live lawless lives. That's really, really important. Christians do not live lawless lives according to Jesus. Christians live righteous lives for the glory of God according to our Lord. Christians are people, and this is really important here, Christians are people who recognize that they are sinners, And being sinners and having no hope of earning favor with God by their works, they see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has made a way for them to be counted righteous. And they believe on Christ for this righteousness. They trust in Him. And at the very moment that they trust in Jesus Christ, they're united to Him. And being united to Him, they are changed. They are born again. They are made new. They have new spiritual eyes and they want to live for God and live for Jesus Christ. They want to glorify God because they now love Him. And because of this change, they will increasingly do the will of the Father throughout their life and they will walk in the narrow way. They will walk in the righteousness, the God-centered righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount. Now friends, if you don't have this change, And if you're here this morning and you're looking at your life and you're examining your life and you say, I have not been transformed to want to live 
for God and for His glory and for righteousness when I practice lawlessness and I don't think my sins are forgiven. If that is you this morning, then turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ because you are not a Christian. No matter, no matter what you say or do, you are not a Christian if you don't have this life and this transformation. <clears throat> but friends, if you do have this change, you are blessed. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time in this passage. And we ask, Father, now that if anyone here is on this broad way that leads to destruction and has been professing, Lord, Lord, but hasn't really entered into life and doesn't really do Your will, if there's anyone here that doesn't know You and who is a worker of lawlessness inside, internally, and who they really are, we pray that You would open their eyes and draw them to true saving faith. For any that are here this morning that, that are struggling with the assurance of their salvation, we pray that You would make it clear that they trust in You or they don't. And Father, again, that You are powerful enough to draw people to Yourself and, and bring them into the narrow way. We just thank You for the truth of that. And Father, for those who truly are saved, we pray that You would encourage them in the knowledge of their salvation and that they would see that they really do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they really have been born again, made new, and that they are truly, even if not perfectly, following what You command us in the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.